Usually when we talk about habits, we think about the things we do. So like a devotional book at Easter would be a habit we're developing because we're doing a devotional book. But I want to say this, when we're talking about habits, you know, they, they develop and they display usually through uh, uh, the friends we keep and the attitudes we feed, as well as the things we do. So as an example, I usually have a habit of having a stool here. See, you can break habits, too. Uh, And uh, for about the last 45 years, I've been trying to make it my habit to be a better student of God's Word. But to be a better student, I also want to be a better example of living it and a better communicator of it. Now, you need to know that studying God's Word and... uh, and living it does not come naturally for me. I realize for many of you it does. But for me, it's been 45 years of reading and absorbing into my life the Word of God. And I find that it's both difficult sometimes to absorb, to live out what it says, but it's also attractive. There's parts that just make me laugh continually. So uh, I believe that God has given me even the more difficult parts for my good. Now, uh, those are, or that is an example of a good habit that I've tried to develop. We know that many of us have bad habits, habits that can become addictions, things like alcohol, drugs, currently pain relievers throughout our country are just going rampant and, and stealing the souls of, of very good people. Uh, uh, pain relievers, pornography, the list just goes on and on. So we understand we can develop bad habits and get chained to them, but also there are good habits that we can develop and get chained to them. Politeness, defensiveness, promptness somebody brought up today, okay? Uh, exercise, healthy food, all these things are good habits that, that are, you know, that we should want to develop. Now, I'm in the point of my life now where I'm thinking about, okay, I'm gonna have a little more free time coming up. What would be a new habit that I would want to develop? And the one that keeps rising to the top with this free time is to get out of my office more and into the community so that I can mix more with the people of of this area who do not attend Bergen Park Church. Now, part of that habit will be very easy, getting out of my office. I won't have one! Okay? So I, I won't have one to go to that I can get out of. But the actual making inroads into the community will be a challenge because uh, I've done fairly well with my neighborhood, but not with the community. So we are in this section now where we're looking at, in, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus as the Son of God. That's how the whole Gospel starts. Jesus is the Son of God. And as we're looking at it, we're watching how the Son of God interacts with some of the most moral, most religious people the world has ever known. But Jesus does not like what he sees in them internally, and they don't like what they see in Jesus externally. So we we find that Jesus is often with these groups of people in what we call a no-win issue. It comes up again and again and again, but no matter what he does, there's no convincing or... or, or, uh, uh, change of heart, but instead it's it's a hardening of heart the more that these two groups interact. So we're going to be looking at how these two groups clash in the weeks ahead. 
And understand that he is dealing with the religious leaders of his time. And every time I read that, I realize I'm one of those. Not of that time, but of this time. And I have to be really on guard to make sure that the issues that Jesus and I deal with are the big issues. And, and that, that, that I am going to be developing the habits that make me more like Jesus and less like these religious leaders that we're seeing in this gospel. So, uh, one of the things that comes up very early in Jesus' ministry in terms of uh, these no-win issues and developing habits, we find that Jesus uh, develops habits and helps people develop habits. Uh, help people develop habits by the friends that they keep and the friends that Jesus keeps. You see, we, as we started in the gospel, we realized in chapter 1, he calls four disciples, and they're all fishermen, two sets of brothers. Now he calls a fifth disciple, and this disciple is also from the area of the Sea of Galilee, the city of Capernaum. And as he calls them, we understand this fifth disciple is different than the others. He is not a, uh, a fisherman, he is a fleecer of fishermen. He is a tax gatherer. There was a fish tax. I hear there was a net tax and a boat tax. Many of you have paid the boat tax, okay? There was probably a dock tax, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But this uh, one person, this fifth disciple, probably knew the four brothers and maybe associated them with them when, when they were all younger. But this fifth disciple you can find every day at a booth right where the road intersects Capernaum. It comes from the east and goes to the west and the southwest uh, on its way to Jerusalem. It's a major trade route. And so as merchants go through there, they have to stop at the booth. They they have uh, uh, their uh, uh, wares inspected. Uh, the merchants have whatever they're selling counted. And then comes the tax that has to be paid at this booth. The man's name was Levi, but we know him as Matthew, the one the first gospel is named after. So his name is Matthew, and he is a tax gatherer, a tax collector. And Jesus invites him to be his fifth disciple. Oh, come on. Of all the people in all the world... You choose this one. Everybody loves tax. Jesus, you're just going to win a popularity contest throughout the whole nation of Israel now. He invites him to join his band of disciples, and Matthew accepts. It's strange both ways. First, that he's invited, but secondly, that Matthew accepts when you understand he pays a higher cost than others. Now, I don't know if you have any friends who are in the uh, IRS, uh, at tax time, you wouldn't invite them over for dinner anyway. You wouldn't want to show your home or, uh, you know, your W-2s or anything like that. So um, uh, this is not the season to, to befriend them. Well, a tax gatherer back then uh, bought the job, made a bid, leased the job from the government, and he leased it by making a promise that I will deliver this tax gatherer, to King Herod of this region of Galilee, uh, I will deliver uh, the tax coming from all these wares that the merchants are bringing through our town. I will deliver a tax of this much per year. It's my promise. And if I don't meet the promise, 
I'll pay the, I'll pay the difference. And of course, a good tax gatherer wouldn't have to worry about the difference. One for Herod, one for me. Two for Herod, two for me. Forget Herod, three for me. You see, as long as you delivered the minimum that you put your bid on, the rest was yours. Now, is that open to corruption or what? Someone might say, you know, last time I came through, I wanted to pay this much. Well, things change. How often have I heard that? Things change. So all that King Herod is concerned about is this one phrase that's so popular. Show me the money. Matthew delivers his quota. He keeps the rest. And and was he corrupt? I don't know. There's a good chance that he got interested in Jesus through being associated with John the baptizer. That he realized that he, maybe he was cheating some people and he decided to be an honest tax gatherer. That's called an oxymoron then. They just don't exist. So Jesus comes to him and he says to Matthew, Levi, now follow me. And Matthew leaves his booth. Understand that as he leaves his booth, he also leaves the whole career. If you were a fisherman and it didn't work out with Jesus, you could fish again. You leave King Herod, you ain't coming back. You will not get that job again, no matter how effective you were. So that is where we leave off. And and so now this is how this whole event happens. I'm in uh, uh, Mark chapter 2 and I'm beginning at verse 13. And we'll go 13 and 14 just to begin with. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake, Sea of Galilee. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. Now, he teaches them, but apparently this session is over. And it says, as he walked along, probably the road where the booth was, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Meaning, I am no longer a tax gatherer, a tax collector. I am now a follower of Jesus. So what do you do when you leave a career? You have a party, right? Especially one where you're hated as much as you are by the town. And so we go to verse 15 here. And and, and it says there, uh, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, Levi threw a party, but he made Jesus the host, okay? Many tax gatherers or tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, For uh, there were many who followed him. Many of these two groups were followers of Jesus. Uh, They listened to his teaching. They went to his gatherings. They heard him teach. But they weren't necessarily uh, disciples yet. So uh, there is this party. It's filled with two groups, fellow tax collectors. They hang out together because no one else will hang out with them. And now this group called Sinners. Now, I want to say this. In most of your Bibles, sinners has quotes on it. The quotes are not are designed to differentiate from normal sinners like me. I'm just a normal sinner. These are special sinners. In Israel, there are those who know the laws of God and try to keep them to various degrees. Uh, the religious leaders among, you know, keep them to the highest degree. But the other group is the Jews who know the laws of God but refuse to keep them. They're called sinners. 
The term is for Jews who choose to live without the desire to honor God in their lives. Now, did you know that in the United States, uh, there is this new group of sociological categories uh, uh, of people who used to be in church and no longer are? It's a new group, and they're called the Duns, D-O-N-E-S, Duns. You can put that in quotes like sinners. They continue to believe, but they will not belong or have anything to do with church or church people. This is somewhat similar to what you might call sinners in this passage. Not the same, but but, but a separate group of, and a growing group of people. Many people have been wounded by the church. They don't like an organizational. Uh, they, they don't like authority. There's many reasons why they, they are done with church. Well, these sinners have something in common. And they can associate with tax gatherers. They can associate with each other. But the chances are they won't associate with religious leaders of the time. So as Jesus is attending this party and he's having a very good time, uh, Matthew is probably sharing, hey, my friends, this is why I'm leaving uh, the tax collecting business. I'm leaving it to follow this man, Jesus, the, the honored guest tonight. Well, you have those three groups, Jesus and his disciples, the sinners and the tax collectors. But outside, there's a fourth group. And the fourth group that's watching are the groups called the Pharisees or the teachers of the law. Now, the Pharisees not only believe in the law of God, but they practice it. And they don't just practice it. They try to improve it and to perfect it. They set standards and performance expectations that would mean great sacrifice to them. And they love to tell people how much they're sacrificing. It would also be uh, be very open because they have such high standards to cheat on them with great hypocrisy. So here's an example. They can gather wealth in huge numbers, but they can dedicate it to God so they can say to their parents and to their children, oh, I'd love to share this money with you, but I can only spend it on myself right now because it's meant for God. And the parents and the children are saying, well, what's wrong with me? Am I chopped liver? What's, what's wrong? It was open to hypocrisy. Look how much I've dedicated to God. He gets it all when I go. I just get to use it now. Do you get the hypocrisy? Okay. And here's something else. You know, they would not, they stand outside of this party because they believe that bad company corrupts good morals. Paul even said that, okay, in, in, in Corinthians. But Jesus, he looks at these people in terms of who he associates with. And as Jesus looks at these people, this is what he has on his mind. Good company, meaning Jesus, transforms bad morals. Which do you gravitate toward? If you have children, you're very careful who they have playdates with, right? You're very careful. You don't want, well, we won't say who you don't want. But you want good influences. But how about you, not your children? Are you one who says bad company corrupts good morals? Or like Jesus, good company transforms bad morals? Well, they ask this question because they're standing outside. They ask a question, why? Verse 16b, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? These Pharisees 
think, you know, hey, we don't do it. Jesus, you know, it seems to be a, a wonderful, believing man. If we don't do it, why does he do it? And if he's doing it, don't, doesn't he realize it could damage his morality? Good company corrupts, uh, bad company corrupts good morals. That it could damage his morality, and it's already damaging his reputation with us. You see, Jesus has a core value here. The friends he keeps, the habits he's trying to build, is that he wants to associate with people what I call missionally. What do we mean by missional? His friends are part of his uh, purpose in life. Part of his mission is his social engagements and, and and the people that he collects in life. His mission is to guide these lost souls, the sinners and tax collectors, back to God and to do it through his presence and acceptance of them. Jesus wants to show the love of God to people who do not see it from the people who should be showing him the love of God. So this week I was working on this passage. And suddenly you know, I have a mind that, that I, really frightens me sometimes. But as I was thinking about this, I was thinking of several of the incidences where Jesus is in conflict with these religious leaders. And, and into my mind comes Jeff Foxworthy, the comedian, redneck comedian. And I said, let's do this, okay? Hey, let's do this. I'm going to say a phrase, and what your answer is to be, you might be a Pharisee. Okay, with thanks to Jeff Foxworthy and doing it in the, you know, the spirit of, uh, of you might be a Pharisee, but, but not a, you know, not, not calling you a Pharisee. It's not about the title. Again, I read it and let's, let's get that title up, can we? You might be a Pharisee. You got it? There you go. Can you read that out loud? Very good. Okay. You've practiced, now let's go through it. If you thank God that your morality is better than others you know, you might be a Pharisee. Get it? Okay, let's try again. If you are ever jealous that Christians with lower moral standards than yours get blessed more by God than he blesses you, you might be a Pharisee. Prodigal son, right? Right? Eldest brother. If you love to be asked to pray out loud because you are so good at it. If all of your food choices are for health and never for pleasure. That's right. If you never confess your own sins, but love to tell God about the sins of others. If you, oh, okay, I got a killer coming up, all right, but in between. If you avoid people in trouble because you're in a hurry, and besides their real problem is irresponsibility. Good Samaritan, right? Who were the bad guys? Yeah, same ones, same ones. Here's the killer, okay? If you stand outside the liquor store taking names of those leaving who are church members... Okay. And you might. You see, the Pharisees develop lists of people that they should avoid because it might hurt their morality. It would defile them. Jesus takes that list and he says, I'm using this list to make friends for God. His friends are his mission. He associates missionally. 
That's why he loved to be called and why scripture calls him Jesus, friend of sinners. Let that sink in. Because I didn't put this one down. It would be too personally damaging. But if you've been a Christian more than 10 years and attending church a lot, you might be a Pharisee. Some of us are born into it. We just have that attitude, you know. But we can all grow out of it. Well, the other part of developing good habits or new habits would be the attitudes that you feed. What do I mean by the attitudes you feed? Jesus is able to look into the hearts of these people and realize what's going on internally. In fact, it even says that in Mark chapter 2, verse 6. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves. Thinking to themselves. What's going on here? Now, this is that passage from last week. And last week, this man is lowered from the roof, from a hole in the roof. And Jesus looks at him and says, my son, your sins are forgiven. And, 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 and these people are thinking to themselves, who... Who is he to say, you know, only God forgives sins. And Jesus is trying to say, that's right, that's right. Only God forgives sins and I just did it. Guess what? <laughs> he looks into the attitudes that they have and wants to develop different habits by pointing out that those attitudes are going in the wrong direction. Only the Son of God forgives. Only God forgives uh, uh, sins uh, committed against him, and Jesus claims to have that authority. So they are thinking to themselves, and, and, and each coming up with the same conclusion, but Jesus is reading their, twat, their, their, their thoughts like Donald Trump's tweets. He, he, they just come flowing right into him. And, and as he reads them, he knows what's going on in their hearts. Here's another time when it, you know, he's looking at the attitudes. In this passage, it says, when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax gatherers, they asked the disciples, why does he eat with these people? Why does Jesus party with the same people that we reject? And the answer would be, Jesus says that you had the wrong attitude towards these people. To Jesus, they are candidates for salvation. To the Pharisees, and you might be a Pharisee, They are sources of contamination. Who are they to you? Who are they to you? It is way too easy for me to be a Pharisee. Here's the next one. Going into the next chapter. Again, looking at the inner attitudes that are developing the habits that are expressed outwardly. It says this in chapter 3, uh, verse 2. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. They showed up when he's teaching at a synagogue just to write down his theological errors. Any of you taking notes today? I hope not. Well, I hope so, but not in terms of am I correct. You see what they're doing is they're, they're there to criticize. They're there to build up their case. They're there to prove Jesus said this, this, and this. That means he cannot be who he claims to be. How do you overcome that? You separate truth from tradition. You learn to separate the truth of God and his word from the traditions of men. 
The longer we follow Jesus, the easier it will be to hold on traditions that mean nothing to God rather than the truth of God. Now, I've already finished for this year uh, Matthew, Mark, and I'm, I'm uh, delving into Luke. And as I get into Luke, I'm, I'm observing this continual conflict between the attitudes of Jesus and the attitudes of the religious leaders of his day. And I realize that I too often reflect those of Jesus' opposition. So as I study God's word, I want to know what their case is, but I also want to understand why Jesus says what he says, and I want to stick to him, to the truth of God, and separate the truth of God from the traditions of men. Therefore, we don't really care about how we serve communion, but we care that we serve it. That's fine. We have all sorts of freedom. And we don't want to hold on to it. We can go on to thing after thing after thing where you could say, from my church, this is what we did. Well, that was great. In this church, I'm not sure we care. Come up with something better. Separate the truth of God from the traditions of men. And finally, this is what you were expecting. You know, how do you develop habits? It's designed by the things you do. What are the things that you do? Because here's the next incident. I, I go because after this uh, is over, and did you, I, I did, I missed this. Uh, I want to read Jesus' answer as to why does he eat uh, with uh, these people. And uh, he says, uh, <clears throat> on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, in other words, you, but the sinners. Not in quotes, meaning everyone like me. So sometime after this, and probably not too long, another question is asked. And it's this. Now, uh, beginning in verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? In other words, Jesus should be fasting like we are. Jesus should be fasting like John's uh, disciples are fasting. Jesus should be fasting like all the other holy people in this community. And Jesus is not. He's just, you know, he's, he's had a party, but apparently he goes to a lot of parties. He goes to a lot of parties. And he seems to enjoy them. The Pharisees take the instructions of the Bible and try to perfect them to show their devotion. So this time, because they are fasting, it's not, why is Jesus eating and drinking lavishly? The, the, the real question is, why is Jesus eating at all? We're fasting. John's disciples are fasting. Jesus should be fasting if he's really holy and wants to be like us, and he doesn't want to be like us. What happens when you perfect and improve on traditions of men is you forget where you got them from. In the Bible, there is one day of fasting in the Old Testament. It's called the Day of Atonement, in which you consider your sins and you look at this scapegoat on whom all the sins of the nation are poured upon. One. Now, later on, as they return from exile, some of the prophets added four others. Five total. 
Five total days of fasting. So if you're an improver, perfecter, you'd say five's not enough to really get done what God wants to get done. Tell you what, let's do one a month. Ooh, that's better. That's wonderful. We're going to fast once a month, one whole day a month. And we're going to let people know, oh, I'm so hungry. I'm so weak. I can barely, oh, look at me. I am so holy by the way I'm walking because I'm fasting today. So the Pharisees get a hold of this and they say, once a month? Nah, let's try twice a week. Twice a week. Every Monday, every Thursday, all day, you know, from the evening before to the, to the day, to the evening of the next, those are the days we will fast. Boy, are we holy. Boy, are we uh, sorrowful. Boy, you know, just look at us. And Jesus has an answer for them. He says, you know, the reason I came and the fact that I'm here should change everything. The thing we want to do is not share how often we fast. But the thing we want to share is why we continually celebrate. One of the things that we should be involved in because we have come to know Christ Jesus in our lives is that we would celebrate continually. And Jesus gives three examples here. The first is a wedding. The wedding is to be a party. It's not a funeral. Two and a half years ago, uh, I, I was involved in the marriage of my daughter. And, and uh, I, not only did I go to the wedding because I'm her father, okay, And not only was I excited to go, but I got the bill afterwards. What a party. What a bill. And um, the the bills came and they were paid and that was wonderful. But during the party, I tried to celebrate like everybody else, even more so, because that was my daughter, Stacy. And she married a good man. And, And I'm the father. So I was telling everybody, celebrate with me. And I did. It had nothing to do with alcohol. It had to do with the reason for the occasion. And Jesus saying, the reason for the occasion is God has finally shown you what he has promised and is being fulfilled right here. And for the Jews, many of them were missing it. And for us today, we're missing it. So we have no reason to celebrate. We'd rather go to a funeral than a wedding. Jesus says, I'm the groom, you're the bride. Celebrate. Are you glad to be a Christian? Not just glad. Do you find yourself singing for joy uh, or talking about it and, and just talking to God? You know, how did I, you know, how did your love fall on me? Why was I the target of your father's love and your grace? He says, it's also like new clothes. You buy something new. You don't put something old on it so it looks like it's old. Unless, of course, it's good genes, okay? Then you put bad patches on it. And, no, but when you buy something, you, 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 you show it off. you got to wear it. Not only do you wear it, but you wouldn't put the old clothes over to hide it. He's saying, the fact that I'm here, my presence, and God is at work in this day, putting on the old clothes over the new ones would be inappropriate. When the Son of God is present, you get rid of the old and wear the new stuff with joy. And then he talks about new wine. The Son of God is present, so you let go of the old and brag on the new. Now, I'm not a vintner, 
and I'm, I'm not a brewer, okay? I, I don't do either. But I am told that new wine, as it ferments, expands a little bit and gives off gas. When I eat the wrong foods, I... No. Uh, as it expands. So you've got to put it into containers that will expand with it. But the world was filled with old wineskins. Hey, it's been good for years. Let's put the new wine in there. And they do, but it's brittle. And that goat skin just cracks and you lose all the wine. And Jesus is saying, I'm new. The Pharisees are old. Their legalism is old. They have joyous legalism in their lives. And it's not working. And I've come here to burst. Burst the old. A long time ago in a church far, far away. I borrowed that. I was on a search committee for a youth pastor. And uh, and as we looked at several candidates, um, we would ask each one, well, describe your youth ministry. What are the values or what do you want it to look like? And one of the candidates looked at this committee and he said this, well, my youth ministry is summarized in this. Church is a party. Friends, I was stunned. I'm a disciple maker. Church is a Bible study. Church is a prayer session. Church is training, training, training. Church is outreach. So we finished all of those and we went back and we sat as a committee and we said, why is it we can't forget what this one candidate said? And as we looked through the qualifications, he wasn't the most qualified, wasn't the most experienced, but we couldn't drop it. We hired that puppy. And we went through several years of both pain and party. I want to say this. The reason we hired him was we figured our youth needed it. And then we got real honest. Our church needed it. And then I got real honest. I need it. I need to rejoice and know that church is a party. That life in Christ is meant to be a party. That life in Christ shows him associating with people that the good people would never associate with. Yeah, I have all the tendencies of a Pharisee, and we hired that person for me. Let's pray. Father, your son changes everything he touches. It's a transforming power. May he be transforming us. To understand that true religion is not how solemn we are but how we stick out for our joy. There's a season for solemnness. There are ceremonies for it. But your son came to invite us to the joys of eternity, which can be experienced right now. I pray for the serious Christian, whether it's a clean joke book or a good friend, or searching attitudes that they want to cleanse. 
I pray for the serious Christian. They'd seek joy with all the seriousness in their hearts. And I pray for the skeptic right now who thinks Christians have no fun. And if he knows me, he may be right. But I pray that it wouldn't just be my sense of humor, my teasing, my laughing at myself, but my joy in Jesus Christ that would win the skeptic over. And I ask this in Jesus' name. God's people said, 